Welcome to the sermon podcast of Twin Oaks Christian Church. This podcast is for the Twin Oaks community and beyond. What you'll find here is an honest exploration of the Bible that takes seriously the world around us while being informed by 2,000 years of the Christian tradition. This approach allows us to seek wisdom from the past as we face the future together as disciples of Jesus. Such a thought roots us in a living and diverse tradition, allowing us to explore critically the mystery of our faith. I'm happy you're joining us today, and I hope you're edified by what you hear. All right, if you would, go ahead and open up with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Give me an amen when you are there. Amen. All right, not Haman, but May. Amen. I almost said Maymen. Sorry, May. <laughs> I've lost my mind. Let's dive in. Ephesians 4 1 through 16. <laughs> oh, man. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given a grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. The gift he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro, and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. Would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Open up our ears to what it is that your spirit has to say to us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, O God and Father. Amen. I don't know how many of you have your Bibles out, and uh, on the top of chapter 4, I'm curious, what does it say? What is the label? You know, the label that's there that's not actually in the Bible, but it's there in your Bible. In relation to other believers? Unity of the body of Christ? Steve? 
Unity and maturity in the body of Christ. Okay, I like that one. Unity of the Spirit. Y'all noticing a theme? Unity, 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 unity. You're in a church that was built on the grounds of unity. This is one of the objectives of the restoration movement of the Stone Campbell movement. Now, we don't talk about that a whole lot, but one of the objectives was to unify the church when before we were divided. It's a beautiful thing. Unity, when practiced well, creates human flourishing, I'm sure of it. But we live in a world that is not unified, and I don't see it getting any better anytime soon. And Paul warns about this kind of thing. Look with me in verse 14. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. That word for doctrine there is not a traditional word for doctrine. The word doctrine there is the word didaskalos, which in Greek simply means teaching. Don't be blown about by every teaching that you hear. But here's the thing. I have Facebook, I have YouTube, I have the news app on my Apple phone, I have Fox News, I have MSNBC, I have NBC, I have every BC that's in there. You name it, I've got it, I guarantee you, because I want to have the plethora of understanding. But then people will look at me, and people have looked at me and said, oh, that man is full of too much thinking. He's in his head too much. And one thing I've noticed is that they were right. Namely, my dad was right. My mom and my dad are almost always right when it comes to talking about me, which is sort of a bizarre thing, I suppose, something that nobody wants to truly admit, but they know me well. We're taking in information from every nook and cranny of the world. I know Ecclesiastes says that there's nothing new under the sun, but some things are new, like apps. They're new. They didn't have that back in Solomon's day. Let's be real. So keeping that in mind, it is difficult to maintain unity in a globalized world because I think we're beginning to realize how different we really are. And it's not just a difference of geography and location. It's a difference of ideology, of politics, of religion, various different kinds of things, personal preferences. Intersectionality is a major thing in our world right now that people are having a conversation about. And I think in some ways it's very good, but it's also easy to go down a rabbit hole that is very difficult to get out of. How on earth does one maintain unity in a world like that when we're taking information in from every which way? Believe it or not, it's actually a question I asked myself when I got married. I wasn't sure that I wanted to get married for a long time. I wasn't necessarily scared of it, but I didn't have the same kind of view of marriage that a number of my friends who got married especially early on in their lives did. I wasn't a hopeless romantic. I really was more, you know, what's the word, cynical towards that. I was skeptical of falling in love, and I'm still very skeptical of those who fall in love because nobody falls into anything really that good. It's never intentional. You fall into a puddle, right? You don't fall in love. You commit yourself to love. And when you commit yourself to love, you're committing to a very, very complicated thing. But when you've been married for a number of years, 
when you've worked through a lot of the hard stuff, you experience flourishing. This is not just a Christian perspective. This is one that you can read in a grand plethora of academic literature within the psychological field. It's everywhere. Long-term monogamous relationships are powerful. Now, here's why I bring this up. I was skeptical of marriage, but have learned more about myself in my own marriage than I have anywhere else because now I'm living with another person. And when you start to live with another person, when you start to interact with another person, and you're within this bond of peace, as it's called to here, this bond that you have created around you, which is sort of like this binding or this tying around of each other, you can't just opt out whenever you want, right? Just because things are a little bit hard. You have to work through it. And often what you'll find is that when you start working through stuff, it's probably not the other person like you think it is at first. That's usually the hunch. Oh, this other person is the problem, right? They're the ones who burn the pancakes, not me. And that's never happened in my family. We don't burn pancakes. We always make them perfectly. But it's an example that I think is really pertinent, something that's powerful. Like we we always, I think, not always, I'm hesitant to use language of, of just black and light like language, but I think that we have a tendency to lean into blaming other people for our problems. And here, here's an example of that. Have you ever asked the question, why do I feel the way that I do? Have you asked that question before? This isn't rhetorical, I'm sorry. I know it's a monologue and stuff. But you've asked that question, why am I feeling this way? When we ask the question, why, it actually gives ourselves over and it passes responsibility off to somebody else. Instead of asking a question that might be better, you know what that question is? How am I contributing to the anxiety of the situation? Asking why is something that's passive. It's putting it on somebody else, asking how I'm contributing and saying, what can I do about this scenario? And this is one of the first steps of working out true and good unity. It's taking an inward look at oneself and not an outward look at the world around you, at the people around you, at the events that are taking place everywhere around you. It's saying, how can I be a good citizen, not why is the world on fire? Why do I feel anxious when I look around? But how can I contribute to making a difference where I am? We often have a tendency in our anxiety to try and take on the angst of the world because somehow that'll help us fix it. But I don't know about you. When I feel anxious, do you feel like you can fix the world or do you want to go cower into a corner somewhere? Yeah, I want to do the coward one. I want to go find a place to hide. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to have to deal with it. I don't want to have to do the hard stuff. But I know that within me, I really do want to do the hard stuff. Because ultimately, I want to make a difference in the world, even if it's small. And marriage is one of the gifts that God has given us for discipleship in order to work some of that stuff out. It's one of the first places that we can learn to work through unity. Now, that's one of the places that I have found the ability to grow in this idea of unity. But it isn't just there. Maybe you've experienced this too. I mentioned this in the prayer earlier, but how many of you have had scattered thoughts before? Oh, perfect. Nobody else. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, okay, three of us. Good. We're feeling better. Scattered thoughts. How are you feeling when you have scattered thoughts? Are you feeling really good? 
when you got to get everything down on the planner, but you can't quite remember everything that's in the planner, right, or that you have to write down, and you're really anxious, so you start writing it down, you find your sticky notes, you find all the things that you use. When your mind is split like that, it's hard to find peace in your life, and that stuff doesn't just go away when you leave work or when you leave whatever it is that you're doing. It comes home with you. It's something you can't just turn it off. I love this idea of work-life balance, but it's actually an impossible scenario, work-life balance. Why? Because you're a whole person, and you're experiencing both things. And so whatever you're doing at work, believe it or not, it comes home with you at times, doesn't it? And you feel that tension. It doesn't just go away. So how do we come back to that space? How do we experience that unity? And just as a side note, the word unity in Greek doesn't mean just unity. It's actually the word for one. It's a oneness. Notice with me what Paul says and how important this is in our passage. I know there are these really great like pastoral gifts or gifts of the Spirit that come up here, and I would love to spend some time focusing on that at another time. But Paul really, really emphasizes this word unity. Notice with me, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. If you want something to be remembered in the Bible, you know what you do as a biblical writer? Of course, because you sit down and you get trained in how to be a biblical writer in the ancient Near East, obviously. No, but what you do culturally is you say something three times. They don't have quotation marks. You say something three times if you want it to be remembered. You say it over and over and over again, and that's great. But notice what Paul does. He doesn't say it just once, twice, three times, four times, five times, not even six times. He says this word seven times in two English sentences, which is probably a part of one of Paul's really long run-on sentences that he has in Greek. Seven times he says one. And to make matters even more intensified, notice what word he uses at the end of that sentence in verse 6. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of what? All. Who is above what? And through all and in all. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. The idea is this oneness is available everywhere, all around us. Unity is a word that is being bashed right now. There are fringe groups all over the world, and, and, and there are good things that can come from that, but if we cannot unify together, it's going to be next to impossible to get any meaningful work done. And so I want to throw this out there. It's worth working on unity in order to experience flourishing, not just in your mind, bringing it all together, not just in your relationships, whether it's close friends or marriages or family, but within the church. Because the church can be a model for what this oneness can look like. And maybe it doesn't rub off on the rest of the world. But you know that when you experience oneness of mind, when you're in the moment, when you're fully present where you are, how does it feel? You know it feels good. I don't want to put that on you, but you know that it feels good. 
You feel at peace with the world. You feel at peace with the people around you. So how do we attain that unity? There are five things that Paul suggests here in this text. And sometimes I think it's a little tacky when we're like, five steps to unifying the church. That sounds great. We can make a really great, you know, kind of teaching lesson out of that or whatever. But really and truly, Paul was a teacher, and Paul lays this out for us right here in our text. Notice what he says with me here at the very beginning. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Five different virtues are mentioned there. Humility, gentleness, patience, or we'll talk about here in just a second, long-suffering, and love, which can also be defined as charity and peace, which in the Hebrew language is shalom and this wholeness. So what is humility? Did you know that humility is actually a very unique virtue within the Christian world? Did you know that humility was not valued in Greco-Roman society? Did you know it was actually frowned upon? Because when people saw the word humility, they saw weakness. In fact, it was kind of associated with people who were sort of ignorant. That, that's part of the word. It was actually considered to be a bad thing if you're humble. I'm sure they had a hard time reading about Moses being the most humble man on earth if they were a Gentile coming in to sort of the Christian worldview. But humility, according to Basil, one of the ancient church fathers from the 3rd and 4th century, says that this is one of the groundworks for all of the Christian virtues, is to start in humility. The word is tapenophrunes, right? This word literally means to come back to this oneness of mind, having a whole sense of your mind, which means that you have a humble view of yourself. You're not inflated in your mind, but you're not so depressed that you have this terrible version of who you are within your head. It is this balanced version of who you are. Now, I don't know, to be honest with you, I can think of a few people when I turn on the TV that I'm like, oh, that person's got a self-inflated ego. I definitely can tell that, right? You can see that on TV, but the people on TV are rare. How many of you are on TV every single day, right? Yeah, not many of us. Okay, Sarah's on TV every single day. Nailed it. Is your head really big? No? <laughs> okay, perfect. Yeah, no, you turn on the TV, you can see some of those egos. But I feel like that's a more rare thing in our culture. But I think the thing we struggle with more than anything else is... Self-loathing. Josh, I absolutely love this from the other day when we were golfing. <laughs> we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, which we recite every day. And then after you golf and you're just playing really poorly, the last one is not self-control. It's actually self-loathing, right? You have a lot of self-loathing on the golf course. Now, I am borrowing from Josh. Credit to Josh on all of that. That was good. I laughed so hard when I heard that. But it's true. For whatever reason, we value this sense of self-loathing. In fact, in the Courage and Calling book, one of the things that Gordon T. Smith says is that Moses probably struggled with this. And it's kind of a stretch, but, but, but it works. Remember when God called Moses and he said, Oh, Lord, I can't do this. I'm, I can't speak. You know that I can't speak well and all of this stuff. But the Lord had called Moses. So do you think the Lord knew what Moses was capable of? Yeah, he knew what he was capable of. And so he calls him into that. But Moses says, Oh, I can't do it, Lord. And what's being demonstrated there is a sense of false humility. That's not actually true. 
And so for Moses, there's this sense of false humility. That isn't good humility. But then there's the other side of this that we experience where we're just beating ourselves up and we get into this negative spin and spiral to where we press our down so, ourselves so far that, that we can't like learn to negotiate when we enter into a new job. We aren't able to stand up for ourselves in a relationship, which is a wrongly ordered passion. If we're in a marriage, if we're in a friendship, we say, I, we, we're afraid to say, oh, you know what, I need some time. I, I need a friend that I can vent to right now. You've vented to me a lot. I, I love to be able to share kind of my feelings. When we get in that space where we're unable to do that, that isn't true humility. It's not recognizing that we are a whole person who also needs some help. This word for humility means that we are in that oneness space, excuse me, space. But we're in that place in our mind where we're not overinflated in our ego and we're not underinflated. Is that the word? Totally deflated. Maybe that's a better word. If you're trying to find it, reaching for it, reaching for it. Okay, got it. So humility is one of the first places that we start. This idea of having a balanced mind. Knowing self well. I know who I am. I know what I'm capable of, and I also equally know what are my limits. Those are important things to know about oneself. And sometimes, when you really don't know, bringing a community in around you, whether it's friends or family, they can tell you, yeah, I can notice this in you. This is actually what you're really good at. You may not know it, but you're actually really good at this. It is so valuable to have real and true friends who can say that. And equally, I remember hearing this in seminary, Having a person who can tell you, you know, you're kind of being a butt when it comes to this. And I, I'm making that PG right now. You're not being very great when it comes to this thing. You could use some work on it, or maybe it's something you drop. But having friends like that that can be real with you, that aren't mean, is incredibly valuable. The next virtue that we are called to is this word, gentleness. Prawaites, Right? This word for gentleness is odd because when I think of gentle, I think of like, oh, the kids just went to bed and, and what I want to do is I want to go into the bedroom and I just want to put my hand on one of their heads and just brush their forehead and be gentle because if I'm not gentle, they're going to wake up and I can't handle them waking up right now. <laughs> like in 10 minutes, I got to go watch a show because I'm going to lose my mind. But like when they're in that peaceful state, you know, golly, it's beautiful. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. So there's that gentleness. No, but this word for gentleness is actually a word for meek, which meekness was also not valued in the ancient world, but it meant gentleness or self-control in the sense of controlled strength. This is not weakness. This is knowing when to use your strength and using it properly. Okay, again, I'm sorry, Josh. I don't mean to pull you into this so much, I know, but I'm gonna pull you in because I thought this was so cool. Um, Y'all golf at all, anybody? I'm super bad. And some of you will be like, I'm super bad too. And I've been playing for so many. I'm really bad. Like I'm still struggling to like actually hit the ball correctly. I hit it with the top of my club, right? And then it bounces forward about 10 feet. That's the kind of bad that I am. You're a different kind of bad. I almost guarantee it. But when I was playing with the people I was playing with the other day, I was playing with somebody named Joe and somebody named Josh. And Joe and Josh are both incredibly good in my mind. Now Josh may say he's bad, but it's a different kind of bad, if that's the case. So we're just going to pull it back here. This is not false humility. This is real. Pulling it back to the other virtue we just talked about. This is real. When I see Josh and Joe line up and swing, this 
is the gentleness we're talking about. It is controlled. When I come to hit the ball, it is with strength. And man, I work out almost every day lifting weights. I'm not trying to brag. This is what I do. And I come up, I'm like, maybe I can hit it really far this time. And I come up and I hit and maybe it goes 100 yards. And then it always bends to the right every single time if I hit it which is great. I'm glad when I make contact. That's one of the things we learned to say was good. It's like, oh, you made contact. That's good, Aaron. So nail it there. But then Joe and Josh, man, they come up and they get up there. They don't swing as hard as I do, I don't think. I swing like out of control. Like they are this concentrated boom and they hit it. And I kid you not, straight down the line, what is it, like 200 yards, 300 yards, somewhere in between there? Like 400 yards? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I'm looking at this thing, and it is flying. It is controlled strength. You can come in with all the strength in the world. You can come in with the strength of Hercules golfing and hit it, and it might go this way, and it won't go very far. But if you know what you're doing, if you're able to train yourself in such a way to come and hit the ball correctly, you can hit it further distances. That is gentleness in the biblical sense. This is one of the things we need in order to achieve oneness. We are not asking you as a part of the church to not use your strengths. We're asking you to find out what your strength is and learn how to hone in on that to master the skills that God has endowed you with. What are those things in your life? And if you haven't spent time thinking that through, start thinking it through today. Because believe it or not, the church needs you. God wants to use you in the world. God has endowed you with some gifts that aren't just going to make God look good, but when you actually embody them, you will experience human flourishing. And not in the sense of like, I'm gaining all of this wealth here, and this is beautiful and wonderful. No, rather in the sense of, man, I have mastered this craft, and I love doing what I'm doing. It's like when you find the thing that you're willing to do without getting paid for it, and then you're getting paid for it, and you're like, oh my gosh, life is nothing but a gift, right? It's that kind of thing. This is biblical gentleness and biblical humility. And he takes it a step further. And he mentions that we need to have patience. And I hate the word patience compared to what a better Greek translation of the word is. The word patience is makrothumia. And makrothumia means literally, it's the combination of two words. Long, makras, and thumia, passions. You ever heard the psalm say, the Lord is slow to anger? Slow to anger. I love that line because it means God is long of nose. That's literally what it says in Hebrew. And I got a long nose, so it works out really well for me. But the idea is that it's this long suffering or these long passions. God is willing to sit with you through these strong emotions. Again, it comes back to the sense of control, acknowledging the feelings or the passions which exist within you, but then learning how to hone those in for the skills that you, know, you need for the world. 
So this long suffering is beautiful. One of the examples I can think of for this, and this is, again, I I don't mean to lean so heavily on the parental stuff, but I'll be honest with you, it's just part of our lives now. It's when your kid is having a tantrum and you're sitting next to them and you're not flipping your lid. That is macrothumia. That is patience. That is long suffering. When your child is still learning to manage their emotions, when they're learning that they have them for crying out loud, when they're learning that they're independent and they start getting upset because they don't want to eat peas again because peas are gross and we all know it, right? You know, again, I know, I don't mean to be like just hitting on everything that's, yeah, we all know this. It's common knowledge. When they're so tired of that that they just, they lose it. And then as a parent, you know, you might think like if, you, if you're not a parent, like, oh, you know, you know don't, don't lose your mind. I mean, remember, this is a one to two-year-old. No, you get mad at one to two-year-olds if you didn't know. You really do in a way that you get mad with adults. Yeah. And it's weird. And you're like, rationally, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would I be arguing with a two-year-old? But here we are again for the third night in a row. Macrothumia. Yeah, yeah, throw it on the ground. Macrothumia is waiting with your kid in the high chair, waiting for it to pass, because there's literally nothing else you can do. And let's be honest, as adults, we have tantrums too, don't we? They may look different. We may not be throwing peas on the ground and stomping on them, or we may not be throwing quinoa on the ground because we know mom and dad hate cleaning up quinoa because it doesn't clean up within a broom, right? It may not be that. It might be the traffic stuff. It might be a friend ghosting you. It might be your family not getting back to you or missing out on an event. It might be one of those things. And then you feel it inside. So instead, what we try and do is we cut them out of our lives. We try and distance ourselves. We try and start a fight. We try and overfunction. We just get depressed and don't get out of bed and we underfunction. Or we try and pull in a third person and say, You should be on my team because they didn't call me back, you know, and that person's bad. And you agree with me that that person's bad for doing that, right? Macrothumia is learning to wade through that, it's developing endurance. Endurance will help us gain unity within the church. Macrothumia is long-suffering or patience. And then, of course, here's the greatest one that we all know about because of Paul. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. All you need is love, right? Love is a strange word. There's four words for love in Greek. There's agape, which is what's used here. And this is a form of charity. There's storge, which is a form of like friendship or familial love. You don't have to do anything special to experience it. You just have to be around a person for a certain amount of time, and they become a part of your life, and then all of a sudden you realize, I love them in a certain way. That's my friend. This is how things are, you know? It's that feeling you get when you see a bunch of puppies just snuggling together. You're like, oh, I love this. It's that kind of love. And then there's philia, which is the friendship love that we have between each other. And then there's the passionate eros, which we'll save for after church. You can figure it out. The really passionate stuff. With that said, this is agape. And a lot of people will say there's a bunch of word studies that are done on agape, and I think it's so easy to overcomplicate this word. Agape, agape in its simplest form can mean benevolence or charity or love. It's when we take care of each other. 
is the ground out of which we operate. You've heard it before already with Paul. He says time and time again, I pray that you would be rooted and grounded in love. Why? Because we need to be charitable to one another. I think psychologists say something like every negative thought that comes into your head in order to counterbalance that. And I kid you not, you need at least five to seven positive thoughts. I mean, that is severely outnumbered. So developing charity within your mind toward yourself, developing charity within your mind towards another is so important. Is it David Foster Wallace, the one who was talking about when you're cut off in traffic or somebody's in line and they're doing something, trying to get ahead of you, and the first thing that comes to mind is that is a bad person. We're mad at that person. There's nothing that justifies their actions right now. But in reality, we don't know what their scenario is. We don't know the reason that they're cutting us off going 90 miles an hour is because their wife is having a baby and they are trying to get to the hospital right away. And if we knew that information, we would look at them differently, wouldn't we? Or that person's a bundle of stress or that person has experienced a great deal of trauma in their lives and so this is just how they're acting out in this moment. Now that doesn't make it okay, but at least having that understanding in your mind helps you to have love, charity, or compassion for that person. And when you start to have compassion for yourself and compassion for other people, and you, start to, you become charitable, you start to think of people in different ways. And believe it or not, it starts to change how your mind is actually wired. You see the world in a different place. The world is not all suffering. There is suffering in the world, but it's not all suffering. There is beauty and love as a gift to be experienced day in and day out, if you have the eyes and the mind to see it. Love is the fourth of all the virtues that lead us to unity. And finally, the last word that is used here is the word peace. Irene in Greek and shalom in Hebrew. And you've heard me talk about this plenty before, so I won't go on in detail about it. But when Paul says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one over your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all, just before that he says the way that we get there is having unity or oneness, again, of the spirit in the bond of peace. The bond of peace. We are bound together. And when we are bound together, in a marriage covenant, when we are bound together in a covenant of friendship. Let's, let's bring that back, by the way. Covenants of friendship, that sounds good to me. Let's bring back the, the binding of friendship, the binding of family, the binding of churches, because it's only in those binding moments that we can actually grow into a true kind of peace, because there is nothing worse than what going online, getting a Facebook friend, getting on Instagram, and then getting blocked, Right? That isn't the bond of peace. It's like, no, I'm just opting out. We're good friends. We're not friends anymore. So I'm out of 5,000, right? I'm out of here, okay? That, that isn't building friendship, and it's not helping us at all. We aren't growing in any way. And part of what we are responsible for is ourselves. We cannot control the world around us. The only thing we can have any semblance of control of, and it's not always having control of, is ourselves, 
And the way the world is going to get better is when we start to look inward and we start to correct ourselves together in the bond of peace. Why? Because we are now bound together and we are choosing to grow together in virtue. And this is the thing which will purify us and ultimately, by God's good grace, purify the world so that we can become the leaven to the world's bread, causing it to rise as this pleasing and sweet aroma to the Lord. When we as a church learn how to embrace the hard work of practicing the Christian virtues, which again are humility, gentleness, long-suffering, love, and peace, rene or shalom, that is when we will experience the oneness. And even if it just happens from moment to moment, it will be something that drives us to experience it yet again. Because to the person who has experienced oneness of mind when they are alone praying to the Lord, to the person who has experienced oneness with a good friend, when to the person who has experienced oneness to a husband and a wife, or within a church, or within a society, you know, you know in your core, it is worth pursuing but if you are going to get there, you need these five virtues. The question at the end of the day is, will you pursue them with all that you are? Amen? Amen. Holy God, we thank you for the unity of the body of Christ, even when we can't see it. I pray this morning that you would allow us each to experience on an individual and communal basis the oneness of mind, oneness of relationship with others, oneness within the church, and even oneness in the world, whatever that looks like. Help Twin Oaks Christian Church, the individuals who gather here as the body, help us to be sanctified as a people in order to experience the unity of God. Pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, O God and Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Twin Oaks Christian Church. For more information about Twin Oaks, please visit our website at twinoakseugene.com.